so glad that you're joining us again for our worship here at the Walla Walla University Church. Um, we're grateful for the musicians who practice and who use their gifts and their talents in service of God and in service of our worship service. It's been a strange school year. As I talk with students and talk with teachers, I recognize that they are having to put in Herculean efforts to continue to uh, teach and also to learn during this uh, time of COVID. Right here at Walla Walla University, we have actually hit the halfway point, and from now on, it's downhill to the end of the quarter, and we are grateful that God has been with our campuses here in Walla Walla, also in Missoula and in Portland, uh, that for the most part, our students have been safe, instruction has been able to continue, that teachers have been able to employ incredible creativity in coming up with classes, in teaching bimodally, and we're just so grateful for the way God has kept us, and we continue to welcome your prayers that we might finish the school year strong and finish it well just as we have started. Also want to thank you for your faithfulness in the way that you continue to support the ministries of the Walla Walla University Church, your faithfulness in giving for those of you who have had difficulties with your employment, your faithfulness in your prayers. We're so grateful that God has kept us and allowed us to continue to bring a service like this to all of you during our time uh, of difficulty during this year. I also want to implore you at this time not to forget those who are suffering isolation, those who are by themselves, those who don't have the ability to be in a pod or to be with a group of people uh, to be able to do life with. And so as you are able, as restrictions allow, whether it's going to their front door and meeting them at their porch, whether it's checking in on them on Zoom, whether it's checking in on them over FaceTime, continue to remember those people who are not able uh, to have community around them. I'm going to invite you to bow your heads with me as we have a word of prayer before we begin. Gracious Father, we recognize that there is a place of quietness. There is a place of rest when we are near to the heart of God. And so God, whatever our week has been, whether we come to this moment with joy, whether we come to this moment uh, with confusion, whether we come to this moment with grief, uh, we come because you have promised to meet us. We come because you have promised to mend our broken hearts. We come because Jesus invites us. And so for these next few moments, as we consider your word, we invite your spirit to be with us, to make the changes that we need. And we pray that we would see Jesus. It is our prayer in his name. Amen. In 2001, the Nisqually earthquake happened just northeast of Olympia. And if you're part of the Walla Walla University community, or if you're part of those of us who are in the Northwest, you might be aware of that earthquake which happened. It happened just northeast of Olympia, and yet it affected Oregon, Eastern Washington, uh, it affected Canada, and it affected us all the way up the Pacific Northwest. It caused upwards of $1 billion of damage. Actually, some experts think it caused up to $4 billion worth of damage. 
One of the places it damaged was uh, in Seattle, and this is a picture of the Magnolia Bridge, which leads from northeast of downtown of Seattle into Magnolia. And the Magnolia Bridge was weakened. It's a concrete bridge, and it was weakened by the earthquake. And so Seattle Department of Transportation, of course, uh, did some extensive study to see how strong the bridge was after the earthquake. And they recognized that the price tag would be upwards of $400 million to be able to fix the damage that the bridge endured. And so they procrastinated because who wants to spend $400 million on fixing an old bridge? And I remember in 2008 reading an article in the Seattle Times announcing that the bridge was structurally deficient. Now that isn't a word that you're going to want to hear when you are driving over a bridge on a consistent basis to hear that it is structurally deficient. But this was what the Seattle Department of Transportation had recognized. And yet, for years, they had been employing temporary solutions. They were bracing it. They were reinforcing it. But now, routine inspections in 2018 would find up to 20 feet cracks on the bridge. There was concrete flaking off from where the bridge rests on support columns. And the bridge that I would drive over on a daily basis, one of the arterial routes from downtown Seattle into Magnolia was suffering, and it was being held up with temporary fixes and with temporary repairs. Now, I think we've all found ourselves in a tight spot where we have had to use a temporary fix or a temporary repair just to make it through. We found that a vegetable peeler can, in a pinch, Uh, replace a Phillips screwdriver when you need to get the job done. We found that duct tape works wonders on vacuum cleaner hoses, on rubbish bins, on camping tents. Duct tape is incredible in a pinch. And out of desperation, some of us have employed clear food wrap as car windows. And more seriously, some of us, when we have tried to deal with difficult situations in our lives, in our families. We have thrown temporary fixes at it when really it needed a deep and difficult conversation with a parent or with a child, or actually a deeper conversation with a therapist. We have tried temporary fixes so that we can move forward in our life. And why do we do temporary fixes? Sometimes it's because we don't have access to what would truly solve the problem. Sometimes we just don't know how to solve the problem in a permanent way, so we just reach for what is closest and we try to make do. But we all know that the problem with temporary solutions is that it doesn't fix the problem. A temporary solution doesn't fix a problem that requires an ultimate solution. And if I were to think this morning of one of the most enduring and persistent of problems that we try to fix as human beings, that problem that has plagued us, both ancient and modern peoples, would be the word sin. This is a problem that humans have tried and failed to try to address for so 
many years. For non-religious people, this word sin is encoded with a memory of ancient condemnation. It taints our consciousness with a sense of naughtiness whenever we think about pleasure, whenever we think about what we might like to do. This word sin, if you're non-religious, is a word which seems to dampen you having any pleasure in your life. And if you are religious, it plunges us into a constellation of meaning. Sin. What is sin? We might say sin is transgressing God's law. Sin is disordered love. Sin is broken covenant. Sin is missing the mark. And if you look in the biblical record for the vast majority of the time, you would find that there was a solution for sin. If you sinned, there was a temporary solution that you could employ to try to cover up your sin. Leviticus chapter 4, verse 1 to 4 puts it this way. The Lord said to Moses, say to the Israelites, when anyone sins, there's our word, unintentionally and does what is forbidden in any of the Lord's commands. If the anointed priest sins, bringing guilt on the people, he must bring to the Lord a young bull without defect as a sin offering for the sin he has committed. He is to present the bull at the entrance of the tent of meeting before the Lord. He is to lay his hand on its head and slaughter it there before the Lord. And so this was a temporary solution for sin. But then once a year on Yom Kippur or the Day of Atonement, there would be a different uh, problem or there would be a different solution to the problem of sin. The high priest would enter once a year the most holy place. And the most holy place would be where the high priest would go after bringing two goats, two sacrifices, one upon which the high priest would pray all of the sins of Israel on the head of that goat and would sacrifice and take some of the blood into the most holy place. And then on the Azazel or the scapegoat, the high priest would pray all of the sins of the nations and they would have someone lead that goat out of the camp and into the wilderness to be a scapegoat for the sins of the Israelites. And it's recorded in Leviticus chapter 16, and it's put this way. On this day, atonement will be made for you to cleanse you. Then before the Lord, you'll be clean from all your sins. And then it goes on, this is to be a lasting ordinance for you. Atonement is to be made once a year for all the sins of the Israelites. Now, if you don't know the Bible particularly well, if you don't really do much reading in Leviticus because it's a difficult book, then it's enough for you to know this, that atonement would cover all of the sins of the nation of Israel that year. Then you might ask, okay, cool, cool, Andreas, that sounds like a pretty significant act. Surely it would ameliorate sin more than just for one year, right? I mean, when the next calendar year came, they would be good, right? They, they would have that sin and it would be like a, a premium, an insurance policy, so that the next year they would be also good with God. And the answer to that is no, because the very next day, as soon as they would go to sleep and wake up again, it would be a new year and they would begin the round of sacrifice again. They would start all over again. Why? Because the sacrificial system was a temporary solution 
for a problem that required an ultimate solution. Let me say that again. The sacrificial system was a temporary solution for a problem that required an ultimate solution. The problem was sin, and the temporary solution was the shedding of the blood of bulls and of goats. But it was only ever temporary. Now, thousands of years later, author writing about this temporary solution, right in the book of Hebrews chapter 9, verse 22. And according to the law, almost all things are purified with blood. And then listen to this important line, without shedding of blood, there is no remission. And so this author, thousands of years later, looking back to the temporary solution to an ultimate problem, recognizes that blood is needed, otherwise there is no remission. But... This author also recognizes that it doesn't go far enough. Like the repairs on the Magnolia Bridge after the Nisqually earthquake, the sacrificial system was a temporary solution for a problem that required an ultimate solution. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 4. For it is not possible that the blood of bulls and goats could take away sins. Now, if you're reading and you're following with me, and I appreciate if, you, if you're following with me so far as we build a foundation for a very important point, if you're following me so far, there may seem to be a contradiction. Because in Hebrews chapter 9, it says, without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. But then we get to Hebrews 10, and it says, it's not possible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. So which is it? That when you shed blood, sin can be removed, or that when you shed blood, it does nothing. And I think the author understands what is going on. The author is speaking to a deeper truth that this ultimate problem of sin might temporarily be covered by the shedding of blood, as happened in the sacrificial system, but it could not ultimately deal with sin. It could not deal with this ultimate problem. Jewish worship for thousands of years was essentially a temporary fix for a problem that required an ultimate solution. So what was the point, Andreas? Why did they do it? They did it because it was pointing to what God was up to. The system of worship was pointing to a time when God would bring the ultimate solution to our ultimate problem. Year after year, Jews would make their pilgrimage to the temple for atonement. They would lead a calf, they would lead a lamb, they would lead a bull, they would lead a goat. They would sacrifice it so that sins could be forgiven. And this went on day after day, week after week, month after month, year after year, decade after decade, century after century. And then something extraordinary happened. One day, one afternoon, around the year 30, a man seemingly coming out of nowhere. A man who Matthew, a follower of Jesus, says came out of the wilderness. A man, when he spoke, people said, the way this guy speaks, he has to be someone important. 
The way he speaks, he's probably a prophet. This man came out of nowhere in the year 30 or around then, and he looked like someone you would not invite over for dinner, and he had a simple, simple message. This was the message of this man. He said, God is about to do something new in the world. God is about to do something new. God is about to fulfill what he has promised to our nation many, many years ago through the prophets. Just wait and see, repent, turn your way, be ready because God is about to do something new. One afternoon in one of the most dramatic scenes of all of history, John the Baptist wearing camel hair clothes, eating locusts in the middle of the wilderness, looks at the brow of a hill just over a crowd and he points to someone who is coming and he looks at the crowd and he says to them, behold the lamb of God who has come to take upon himself our sin. Not the sin of just the Israelite nation, not the sin of only Jews, but the sin of the whole world. John recognized that the entire law that God gave to Moses was simply a shadow of the reality. It was a shadow of the good things that are coming that now in Jesus Christ are with us here and now. John recognized that killing animals day after day, week after week, year after year, killing an animal on the day of atonement, that all of these sacrifices were just a reminder of sins. They could cover temporarily, but they could not fix us permanently. John recognized that. And that is why in John chapter one, verses nine, he said, (laughs) he said, behold, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And Jesus comes to replace and to replace the entire sacrificial system. A system which was a decent plaster, you know, it was a temporary solution. It was a fix. It was trying to put a band-aid on a gaping wound, but God had given it to them because it was pointing forward to the ultimate solution. It was pointing forward to the ultimate solution to your ultimate problem, your sin, my ultimate problem, my sin, our ultimate problem. And Jesus Christ, when he came, Nobody saw it coming. You can read the Gospels. You can read Matthew. You can read Mark, Luke, and John. Nobody saw it coming. And when Jesus Christ crested the brow of that hill and John pointed to him, no one could have seen it coming. There was no way they could adequately prepare themselves for what was going to be an unprecedented reversal. That God would solve the problem on behalf of the human race that for thousands of years, although the human race had been sacrificing to ameliorate God, to get the approbation of God, to get the attention and the blessing of God, that they had been sacrificing in order to have their sin and their brokenness dealt with, that one day in a great reversal, God would now make a sacrifice on your behalf on my behalf, that it was now no longer human beings sacrificing to God, but now God was making a sacrifice on our behalf, that it was no longer the temporary uh, solution to an ultimate problem, but now through Jesus Christ, there was going to be an ultimate solution for the ultimate problem. 
the problem which plagues us as individuals, the problem which plagues our neighborhoods, which plagues our nation, which plagues our globe, that there would now be an ultimate solution. And on our behalf, instead of demanding something through Jesus, Jesus would offer something for us. He would offer peace. He would offer reconciliation. He would conquer the principalities and the powers of this world. And at the cross, Jesus Christ, after spending three years with his disciples, after teaching them the way of Jesus, Jesus Christ, after showing them how to live into the kingdom of God that he was announcing and enacting, Jesus Christ goes to the cross and his disciples don't understand what's going on. They are looking for a military leader. They don't recognize that Jesus is about to do something incredible that it's going to be the ultimate answer for their ultimate problem. They go with Jesus to Jerusalem, expecting Jesus to be coronated, but they don't realize that his coronation is going to be on a cross. And we find Jesus Christ conquering the powers of evil and ushering in the reign of God. We find Jesus Christ making the kingdom of the heavens available, the kingdom of God available for all his disciples then and now. And Jesus, Jesus stands after conquering sin, after conquering death as the greatest conqueror who has ever lived. Jesus Christ conquered our ultimate problem and became the ultimate solution. And now as Christians, we can stand in that confidence and we can say, you know who the greatest conqueror was in history? Not Alexander the Great, but Jesus. Not Julius Caesar, but Jesus. Not Genghis Khan, but Jesus. You know who the greatest conqueror was? Not Attila the Hun, but Jesus. Not George Patton, but Jesus. Not Hannibal, but Jesus. Not Rommel, but Jesus. Not Napoleon, but Jesus. He has conquered. He has won the victory. He has given us a solution that we could never give to ourselves, And so now as Christians, we can declare and we can know that Jesus is the ultimate solution to our ultimate problem. And that at the table, we remember the sacrifice of the lamb. We rejoice in the victory of the risen Christ. And we declare that the kingdom of God has come. Now, some of you would be aware that this Sabbath is a communion Sabbath here at the Walla Walla University Church. Those who joined us for our in-person service shared communion with us. And we hope that those of you who are at home will be able to share communion with us. That with your family, with your friends, you might be able to get some bread. You might be able to get a cup and you might be able to reenact what Jesus Christ told his disciples to do. And as we go into this moment of communion, I want to read for you a, a poem called The Absurd Victory of the Cross, because communion really is remembering and reenacting something which shifted the balance of power in this world. Who is the greatest conqueror in history? Jesus Christ, it is he. 
consider the testimony. Not by sword and shield, not by nukes and napalm, but by a cross and a crown of thorns, Christ conquered a world of evil. Not by an F-16, but by John 3:16, Jesus won his victory. Not with an aircraft carrier, but as a cross carrier, Christ gained his kingdom. This is a message of hope for the world. Call me crazy. Call me deluded. Call me naive, but also call me a Christian because this is what Christians believe. It's absurd. It's a scandal. And it's the gospel. The gospel of the cross. So raise the cross before every flag. In the end, every flag will fall. But the cross of Christ cannot fall because the cross takes the blow, absorbs the hate, bears the sin, ends revenge, shames the tyrants, disarms the devil, wins the victory. Christ has become king by the absurd victory of the cross. Again, thank you for joining us this week. We hope that the service was a blessing to you and we're so glad you worshiped with us this Sabbath. Please let us know where you're joining us from. You can send us a message on our social media, on Facebook, on Instagram, on our church website. And we pray that you have a wonderful week and God's richest blessings go with you.